This is RDQI. Hey, everyone. Well, with 22 episodes under our belt, (laughs) uh, we just can't resist it any longer. It's time for RDQI to tackle the coronavirus. But why should you listen to us? Well, together, Ryan and I have a combined experience of over 60 years of virtually no medical expertise whatsoever. When's the last time you saw that on the internet? Uh, So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, Give it a listen. Here at the Chicago Guitar Exchange, we know that the guitar is a beautiful and personal instrument. That's why we carry one of the largest selections of acoustic instruments in the country. And we don't even bother with those unsophisticated and noisy electrics. Come visit our conveniently located showroom at View Lake right off the gray line and find your guitar. After all, why drive an hour out of the city to do those other showrooms so you can be treated like royalty cars? The Chicago Guitar Exchange, the showroom for the gatekeepers of our culture. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Dave. I know we're trying to not talk about topical things, but at this point, I sort of feel like the coronavirus is old news. A lot of people, as we as we the the vaccine starts to get rolled out, you know, we're recording this in late February of 2021. A lot of people, I think, are getting getting um, excited about getting back to normal, getting back to the way things were. But I think it's very likely that whatever our new normal looks like, it won't really be exactly the same as what it was before. I think there are things that will have permanently changed. So in your opinion, what are some things that you think are going to have changed forever because of this coronavirus pandemic? Oh, man. Okay. Um, Right. Well, there's a couple ways to slice and dice this one. One would be just to like as an individual, you know, how you go about your life. What's going to change? Um, I mean, I would imagine grocery stores, um, other areas that handle food, anything where like there's any sense or feeling that you are exposing yourself in a way to a potential virus or pathogen. I think there's going to be people wearing masks there still. Like, even if we're vaccinated two years into this process, COVID really isn't that big a deal. I still think you might see um, some maskers just kind of in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, look at look at what happened in countries like Korea, China, Japan after the, the SARS, you know, epidemic, um, however many years ago that was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think masks are going to go away. I, they're not going away. The, the, maybe the mandatory part might go away. Um, but I, I, I really think that you will never go into a grocery store again and not see at least a few people wearing masks. Yeah. And you'd also imagine that on the employee side of any company that's customer facing, especially around food, it might become kind of just normal to wear a mask. I mean, like, so I think, you know, I'm connected to a lot of people who work in hospitals. So for them, this is just kind of funny. It's like, well, I've been wearing a mask during work or at work my whole career. Um, this is just what you do because it's natural in this situation where, you know, you're taking care of sick people. Those sick people are, can be exposed to things in a much um, more life-threatening way. So everyone takes care to, you know, just be clean around them and practice that hygiene. So I think we're going to see more of that just like on the like fundamental cultural level, more people will be aware of the fact that they can help themselves and others by wearing a mask. And how many how many people actually keep wearing a mask? That's a that's going to be culturally fascinating in this country, but I think it'll be somewhat normal. 
And then, I mean, because that's just like if I'm walking to the grocery store, going to the coffee shop down the street. Um, but at a place of work, that's totally different. You know, my line of work is will now be from home almost 100%. Going mm-hmm. into the office, I can't really imagine that happening. To be like, to be honest, at this point. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to to workers who have gone completely remote. You know, if you worked five days in an office before and now you're 100 percent remote, I think that it's very likely that even if you want to return to an office five days a week, that your company is not going to allow that. Right? I mean, companies are are realizing that work can be done remotely, and I think that there is. You know, I, I, I for one, <laughs> don't like 100% remote work, but I really like partial remote work. Um, commuting to an office five days a week, by the time Friday rolls around, you're kind of done with the commute. Two or three days a week, that's it, like opens up a lot more time for stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. for, for work-life balance. Um, and then, you know, think about it from your employer's perspective. They own very expensive real estate, probably. Uh-huh. Um, you know, o- office buildings tends to be in the most, you know, expensive part of any city. So if they, th- if they realize, like, okay, if we have two floors for our employees, what if we have half of them come in one day, half of them come in another day, and now we can cut that down to one floor and cut our real estate budget in half? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's not going overlooked. No. Why would you have two floors when you have now a year's worth of data telling you you don't need your employees <laughs> in the office? And I think that's the big thing here is that this gives everyone an opportunity to be shooken out of their um, their day-to-day, their normal. What looks normal has not existed in so long for us that for people who are trying to innovate and definitely if you're in business, innovation is always a, a buzzword on the top of your brain. Um, so how are those people who are thinking about how to run a business? Of course, they're going to use this as an opportunity to realign the way that their employees work. It's a great time to do it. A, everyone's tired of working from home probably. So even if you brought mm-hmm. them in for like one day a week, that would seem like a, a big moment. Um, emotionally well yeah. not emotionally well yeah sure yeah, emotionally I, yes <laughs> i absolutely think so but because there's this opportunity where there's such a break in habit it's, it's the ability to shape new habits is so tantalizing it's so exciting if you're in a position of management or leadership um inside a company and i've, I've noticed that myself just in my home life personal life i mean this podcast is definitely because of the, the pandemic. I have a lot more free time on my hands in some areas. So here we are talking about the things for fun, more or less. Um, mm. There's some other creative you know, passions that I've been able to spend time investing in because I'm not commuting anymore. Um, I don't have a lot of that extra time that's being wasted on the work of doing a job. So it's it's been really good for me too. And I've been able to instill new habits that have been beneficial for me. So why wouldn't someone else do the same thing when they run a business or if they, you know, are a doctor and are trying to reevaluate how they're going to run their practice from now on. It's such a good yeah. opportunity. You've adapted your life that you, you're not going to want to give up. And I think commute is a huge one. I mean, I, I really didn't realize myself how exhausting my commute was until I didn't have to do one. You know, I, I get done at the end of a pretty long work day now and I still have a bunch of energy. 
Whereas, you know, (laughs) before, after, you know, a long commute, like commuting is mostly just kind of sitting on buses or trains or in your car or walking, but you're using energy and mental capacity just to navigate that. It's a lot more exhausting than you think. You know, I have a a friend who just went back to to teaching in school and (laughs) she's she's saying how how absolutely drained she is at the end of the day because she's just not used to all the extra energy that that entails sure oh yeah of course and like you said you and and me and a lot of other people have funneled that extra energy into some really creative outlets that have really expanded the enjoyment of our lives that we're not going to want to give up no not readily no now have you felt like you've worked more or less if you can, if you can guess off top of your head in the past year, both. Um, I, I don't know. At, at times more, at times less. I think at first more. I think during the winter months more. Um, I I actually worked. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. I put in like two or three hours on Friday night, uh, like this past Friday night. Um, because a, I was kind of excited about this thing that we were doing, but B, I didn't have anything else to do. There was a snowstorm, like it was really cold. Nobody's really doing anything. Restaurants still aren't open. Nobody's going to see each other. So I'm like, yeah, I could watch Netflix or I could just do some extra work on this and get a head start for Monday. <laughs> and that's what I did. Um, every, but it, but it was every employer's <laughs> dream right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but at times less. At times there hasn't been you know work to do, and I'll clock out at you know four o'clock, or or I'll take like two hours out in the middle of the day to go do something. Um, and and you know that's another sort of paradigm that's being shifted, or I think will be shifted, is this idea of of nine to five. Of you know you've got to be at your desk for this amount of time. My company is realizing and, and kind of leading the way on that shift of like, well. Do you are you are you doing what we're what we're paying you to do? Are you driving value for the business? Then who cares when you're doing it or how much time it takes you to do it? Mm-hmm. Right. Now the flip side of that is you got to be available for things when they come up. But you know if you are, then it doesn't matter where you are at one p.m. in the afternoon or one to five in the afternoon if there's nothing on your plate right then. Yeah, and that kind of gets to the whole concept of activity versus productivity. Um, like, isn't it the, the Seinfeld joke that George Costanza would always just look at his computer like he was stressed so that if anybody walked <laughs> by his office, like, oh, he's working really hard. You know, like yep. we've all done that in the office space, pretended to work when we're really not truly working. Um, and so when you're put at home and all that matters is do you deliver what we expected you to deliver? Then all of a sudden the activity isn't important just productivity is and i think that'll be i wonder how much that'll shape the way we think about work is less about the hours put in and more just about the execution of the the project or the goal or whatever is being done now obviously there's some role there's some jobs that's just not possible you know my beloved mm-hmm. baristas out there you're gonna get paid by the hour for the rest of your life it's just part of being a barista i think um working in the service industry which man Talk about an industry taking a hard time right now. Can you think of all the creative and intellectual talent that has left the food service industry in this past year? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's the area where you're going to see the most just just complete shifts in thinking. 
um, because they they have to. I mean, some of this stuff has been you know highlighted by the pandemic, like how how tenuous employment contracts and relationships are for most of the food service industry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. If I were to, if my industry for some reason were to been, you know, hit hard by this pandemic, right? There's so many things built into my employment contract that would have made me pretty okay. Um, or at least, you know, give me a fair amount of lead time to go and find something different. Mm, sure. Um, not at all for the service and food service industry. No, no. Yeah. Talk to our buddy, Chef Eric, and uh, I'm sure he'd give us the skinny on how tenuous that relationship really is at times. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's obviously, you know, has to change. Like the economics of, of food service, when you really look into it, there's a lot of things that are just held on by, you know, duct tape and yarn. <laughs> and luck. How is yep. this house of cards not just falling apart? And it, and it kind of is now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so people are going to want to continue to eat like that demand isn't going away. But I think, you know, a lot of very smart food service talent right now is thinking really hard about how that how that business is going to operate in the future. Sure. But it's not going to not going to go back to the way it was. There's no way. No, there's too much risk now. Every every rental agreement with between a landlord and someone op- operating a food service business is their contract is just going to look different from now on. There's going to be some mention of uh if the government shuts down my business basically because you just have to cover your bases legally speaking yeah well even if you're an investor you know restaurants are not you know restaurants like any business are started with you know investor capital and like investor capital is not flowing to restaurants (laughs) no (laughs) how much of your portfolio would you dump into uh you know brand new startup (laughs) restaurant right now I mean, depending, I mean, you also might feel uh, quite bullish, which I can never remember if I'm using that correctly. You might feel quite bullish and say, I have a new delivery concept that can just wipe the floor with competition right now. And it has a low overhead because we're going to use a ghost kitchen in a non-prime real estate area. And we're going to use this network we've set up to actually deliver food, whether whether it be Grubhub, etc. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there is a good place to invest money in restaurants, but it's just not what we think a restaurant actually is anymore. Well, right. It's people will absolutely invest in disruptive um, companies within the food space, but I would I would phrase it like that and not phrase it as a restaurant. <laughs> right. To, to me, a restaurant is you know it's. Uh, I think I, I think even and I'm just speculating here, but I mean if I'm if I'm trying to you know source funding for a for a something like that that has something innovative behind it. I wouldn't use the word restaurant because to me, restaurant is going to conjure up in an investor's mind something outdated and just an absolute high risk, very little reward investment opportunity. I would say, you know, it's an innovative technology-driven food service. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and that's where the sales comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody wants to go in on this with me, let me know. (laughs) Well, Um, I remember ghost kitchens were such a big thing, kind of budding up around the edges of the food service industry leading up to, at the end of 2019, it was just, the industry in general was on fire of the concept of, if we can get ghost kitchens to work, which if you aren't familiar, listener, a ghost kitchen is basically, instead of McDonald's that you drive to, let's say that McDonald's 
has a kitchen in some business park that you will never visit in person. But you place an order through an online app, and then that kitchen in this nondescript business park executes the order, gives it to a delivery driver, gets to you. So the idea is that you don't ever visit this place. It is a ghost, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I couldn't think of a larger incentive than the COVID-19 pandemic to instigate the growth of ghost kitchens. So yeah. it's, it's funny how, like, and uh, funny is probably not the right word, because if you're on the wrong side of funny, it's terrible in this case. It's funny how fortune shines on certain people and certain ideas in times like this. Like, the mm-hmm. ones that are able to adapt to this situation tend to survive, not to get too, um, you know, evolutionary here. Yeah. Well, that's, I think th- that's, a, that's another key thing that will change forever and has already started, <clears throat> you know, like, the pandemic didn't, didn't start this idea of adaptability and agility, right? right. That was that was a buzzword well before the, the oh, yeah. pandemic. But there were still a lot of people who didn't really buy into that or didn't want to buy into that. You know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of industries are, you know, kind of adapted to that where you are changing industries and careers and functions pretty consistently. But there still existed a large portion of the, you know, working population that, you know, still had the same job for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that will have gone away forever. And and the reason why is that, you know, we've you've seen these disruptions throughout the last 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just listening to a podcast with the, the creator of Netflix, not Reed Hastings, but the other guy. Um, oh, I can't think of his name, so clearly didn't pay that much attention. <laughs> um, but he's talking about, you know, how, how uh, when he was, you know, when they were starting out, Netflix Blockbuster was the biggest competitor and they actually tried to sell yeah. Netflix to Blockbuster for 50 million and they literally laughed them out of the out of the boardroom. Um and you know Blockbuster is defunct 10 years 20 years later. Yep. Um So these you know these disruptions have happened but they're going to happen at such an unprecedented level going forward. And the winners are going to be those that can spin on a dime and adapt. And the only way that you can adapt is if you kind of preemptively put yourself into different situations and different, you know, like it, it doesn't really matter the, the techniques that you have. It's, do you understand the fundamentals behind the techniques so that when you, when you turn into and pivot to something else, you can adapt very quickly. So mm. I actually used this analogy with my dad last night. <laughs> um, think of two people who are making a machine. One person knows how to follow the steps to make that machine. Uh-huh. The other person can follow the steps, but he knows how like the principles behind why these steps are necessary to build this machine. Okay. If those two people lose their jobs, the one who just followed the instructions, well, now he he can only produce this one machine. He goes somewhere else. He doesn't know how to produce it. He's got to relearn the steps. The other guy just knows how machines work. So he can go somewhere else and the machine's different, but he understands the core concepts and he can learn and pick up that new thing a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And that's the skill set of the future. And we you won't be able to get away with just kind of learning the steps and doing and going through the motions because your industry is very likely to be disrupted by something completely different. And you're gonna have to be able to change 
really quickly with a great attitude, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, because nobody wants to hire somebody who's like, I can't believe this thing went away, blah, blah, blah. Which, um, have you ever seen, did you ever watch the movie Hidden Figures? No. Okay. So there's a classic example in that story. So it's a story of um, basically a bunch of African-American women who helped get us to the moon because they were hired as what they were called at the time was human computers. So these people, all they do was sit in a room and solve mathematical equations all day, literally computing for the projects to get us to the moon and various other space ventures. This is back in the 50s, 60s, basically. Mm -hmm. And what they illustrate in the movie is pretty well is that these women, this group of women got wise to the fact that there were actual what we consider computers today coming their way. And so they went ahead and learned basically how to operate, maintain, and program these computers that were coming their way. So they preemptively, like you said, planned for an adaptation that was coming their way. And because of it, they maintained their jobs, even though their one skill set being a computer was literally being replaced by (laughs) literal computers. Yeah. So it's it's tremendous how if you if you can if you can read the tea leaves, if you know the fortune cards come up right and you see the picture in front of you, you can help yourself out. It's also, I mean, how much how much can you really predict what's going to happen tomorrow, anyways? Though. Well, I think that that's an ex- and I, that's actually really interesting. I'm probably going to go watch that tonight. Um, but so so they they saw something coming down the pipeline and they preemptively adapted to it. But like you said, if you don't know the future, how do you preemptively adapt to a future you don't know? Mm-hmm. And I think what what the, you know sort of the ideal is just to try and broaden your skill set. I mean, it's it's really like language acquisition. If you're an adult, learning one language is very difficult. But if you learn that language, then learning the second language or the third language is right. a lot easier. And then the fourth is even easier still. Because now you're starting to understand like how grammar functions within a language. And you can kind of, you know, it's just... It's just You've got cheat codes co- that help you learn right. faster. Yeah. And I think it's compound learning that makes learning just easier. Um, and, you know, so, so something that I've kind of focused on, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the finance accounting world um, and I am in a specific industry. And obviously, you know, what I, I, I have a lot of information that's only specific to that industry. But I also understand, you know, I, I've branched out, I've branched out into like financial, um, you know, you know, uh, accounting systems and, you know, the other thing that I'm looking into is is how enterprise IT systems and, you know, cloud solutions, how the accounting function fits into that larger system and some of the benefits that you can get by having financial data readily available at anybody's fingertips within a giant global firm mm-hmm. um, and how you can use you know, um, application cloud software design to be able to, to condense and manipulate information that then can be just shot instantly to anybody within the organization to help decision-making, you know, finance when I started was about kind of like the, the, you know, women at NASA gear calculator. And it's very quickly become basically the interpreters of the data. We're not producing the data anymore. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have an idea of understanding of how, how that function kind of flows through the system. 
I, you know, have an understanding of the basic concepts that I could go and jump and apply to different industries, which, you know, in my world, I just kind of happen to, to be able to do because we do a lot of different work. So I can, you know, jump to within the products industry or the retail space, and then I can jump to the health insurance space. Um, and it's because I understand the core principles, it's much easier for me to adapt. And honestly, and I, I've seen this in my own career, that used to be very difficult and fast forward to where I am now and adapting to a new industry is, is not only fairly easy, it's, it's interesting. Like, Oh cool. I get to do something <laughs> new now. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's going to be a, you know, I, I've, I've just kind of trained myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I think a lot of this is just my personality is sort of like that. Um, and you know, really accidental, but Mm -hmm. you know, to those who have kind of stayed pretty static for 10, 20, 30 years, that's, you know, it just gets harder and harder to be able to, to make shifts like that. So sure. I mean, neural patterns, the way that our brain becomes what it is, is based on taking our past experiences and bringing, and bringing them to the current moment. Um, so if you've spent your entire life since graduating college adapting to new situations professionally, then when you're asked to adapt to a new situation, your brain is like ready to go for that. Um, and I think that's where it gets tricky is, man, I mean, I can't imagine if, like, hate to keep harping on coal miners, but if like you've been a coal miner for 30 years and say your mind's about to get shut down and there's no work available for you, like after 30 years of being an expert in living and operating under the earth, one of the most dangerous jobs you can do and being magnificent at it, all of a sudden, like what does your skill set amount to if you're not in the coal mine anymore? That's got to be one of the most painful transitions to make is from a really static, deep knowledge base to a new adaptive knowledge base. And I think that's, I mean, since 1980, since the internet really started to be developed in, in the 90s when it actually became culturally useful technology, I feel like the word of the of the century has just been adapt, which has mm-hmm. got to be really tough to a lot of people. I'll take your, your coal miner example, though. Um, and this is obviously simplifying, but, you know, you'll illustrate the it'll illustrate my point. I think there's there's you know two kinds of people who could be working in the coal mine. There could be one that's you know just kind of doing their job and getting paid for it, and that's it. And then you could also you know have be a person who goes down to that mine and does your job, but also ask questions. Ask questions about the to the engineers. You know, hey, how does this how is this mine built? You know, what's how 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 does this thing work? Or the geology around it. You know, what uh, like you know there's different. Um, properties of the different stones and different, you know, mm-hmm. at different points within the earth that make mining the coal easier, harder. I, you know, there's so many different things that you can explore outside of your individual function they pay you to do. Yeah. And that's that kind of learning has to be self-driven. You're not going to get paid to do it. <laughs> no. But you might get paid to do it eventually. Maybe. Maybe. Right. Or it could be useful in what you do to get paid to something else eventually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it kind of comes back to something that maybe we haven't used this word yet, but it almost seems like an innate or a natural curiosity can make a person more inclined to adapt to a changing environment. Would you agree with that? I would. I would 
I think this is a, might be a problem, though, because you and I have a natural curiosity, so this new world doesn't sound very scary to us. Sure, sure. But what about those who, who don't have that innate curiosity? I mean, how do they navigate this new world? I think people have a... I would say, in general, every person, every human has a natural curiosity. Whether or not that curiosity, curiosity has been inflamed and emboldened, um, by the people around you is a different story. I can't account for that. But I think everyone's naturally curious. I think it's a defining thing about being a human. So I think if you don't feel like you're curious, you know, let's say it's just a perception question, then I think just finding anything that you can get into the habit of working on it and just finding any nuance and intricacy, intricacy inside of it will lead to curiosity. So like for instance, you know this, Dave, I've been a cook for a long time. Um, my wife is a much better cook than me, and I'm always trying to play catch up. So that's been kind of like my natural path of curiosity is like I'm going to try and make something for her that um, is unique, is kind of pushes my skill set. That's a natural curiosity I have in myself that I've developed because I have you know, people like my wife and friends like you who encourage me inside of this curiosity about cooking. So if you can find something that interests you and then find the people in that sphere who can then encourage you, I think it's possible to grow your curiosity and then become a curious person and therefore be able to adapt. But again, I mean, that pro that formula, if you will, that I just described means go try something you might be very terrible at and then go awkwardly introduce yourself to people that are good at it. Like those are two pretty big things to overcome, you know? <laughs> it's, it's not like mm. you just wake up and do it. I, I almost think, so I have, I know you have, and I will assume many people have met people in their lives whose curiosity is just gone or appears to be gone. Appears, yeah. Um, but you, you bring up a good point of, you know, I think there is an innate curiosity in most people and it might for, for reasons that I think are mostly driven by life or, or even, you know, um, mental health issues to just kind of driven to ex almost extinction. But I wonder if we, if that becomes something that is a, um, you know, public health issue and, and something that we kind of develop as, as a society going forward of helping people realize or re-understand or refine, there's a way better reword than that, um, <laughs> re rekindle their curiosity. <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, that they've lost. Um, because that curiosity, I mean, I, I know this, learning something you don't want to learn when you don't, or learning something when you don't want to learn something is miserable. It's the <laughs> yep. worst. Learning something that you're just absolutely curious about is not even work. You just do it automatically because you just want to know more about it. Um, you know, so people, we have to help people who don't have that curiosity understand or find or, you know, find that curiosity. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's also, I, I, I like the, what you said about going to somebody awkwardly and saying, Hey, can you help me understand this? Cause I do that all the time and it is scary at first, but what I've found is, um, if you ask somebody who clearly loves what they're doing to explain to you what they're doing, it's, it's almost always the most fascinating conversation because there's nothing more engaging than somebody who's incredibly passionate about something explaining to you their passion. They yep. don't get to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah. they're usually talking to people who already know what they're talking about. Like, oh, well, you want me to explain to you about this thing that I love from page one? Well, <laughs> sit right down. You know, let me let me tell you. Um, people yeah. love to do that. You know. Yeah, it's I've, hard to ask, but it's almost always rewarding. I've always thought. Well, I shouldn't say always. I've spent a lot of time cultivating um, the ability to get that out of people, like to open up that closed book. Um, partially because I've spent a lot of my professional life in sales type roles, so there's a professional need, but also just personal curiosity. Um, and it's amazing. It's it's like it's almost like when you find the key that unlocks someone. Or you finally find that subject and you've, you pose the question in the right way and you have enough understanding about what their expertise actually is that you can get the right question or the best question or the most best right question, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. And then it's like all of a sudden that person opens up. It is such a revelation to get to that moment. And I think that's something everyone really wants to do, but we've all experienced a lot of pain going through that process. And so it's easy to shut off and say, you know, I'm comfortable inside of the life that I have for myself, let me just stay here. And unfortunately, I think this year, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, this year is shaking up that idea that you can do that. Um, or I guess maybe enforcing it if you're, if you're just stuck at home. And I, So let's say if you're shut in, this year might not have helped you. It might have been even made things even worse for you. Um, so it's a good year for pushing people and, and sparking curiosity. I, and I think that's that's really the silver lining to, obviously, you know what, I, I don't want to in any way say that this is a good thing, it was a very bad thing, but, you know, that I, inherently what silver lining means. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. Um, you know, the the tiny good pieces of a larger, very bad thing. Um, but but it, it's caused everybody to really rethink. Uh, if nothing else, you've had more time just to reflect on your life to date. And reflection like that almost always carries with it a second piece, which says, okay, well, what do I want to do going forward? Mm-hmm. And kind of having that reflection time as a global society, I think will bring a lot of good, it, it, you know, just in terms of positive change. Um, it's as we navigate life as individuals, you kind of just have to play the cards that are given you. Right? There's, you, you don't get to just pull a, a ace out of your sleeve just because you want to, unfortunately. Um, and so when life gives you a bad hand, and I'm sure people have had worse hands than me during this pandemic, um, at the end of the day, it usually comes down to what can you do with that hand that you ha- have been dealt? And I think bringing curiosity and an adaptive mindset to the table, it sounds like from what we, the, us two individuals can tell, it sounds like that is probably the best way to carry on when, when possible. Yeah. I, I think, you know, a requirement to that though, is a sense of optimism. Cause I've, I, I'll be honest, I've gone through this in my, in my personal life. I've gone through periods of, of little optimism. And when there's little optimism, it's very hard to learn. Cause what's the, what's the point? Um, it's very hard to, to put yourself in an adaptive mindset. So what's the point? Um, how do we, how do we cultivate or how do people cultivate that that sense of optimism in themselves to be able to enable them to continue to move forward with the hand they're dealt 